0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books in African Studies. I'm your host Becky Okelina. My guest today is Professor Kim Y. Dian. She is an assistant professor of government at Smith College. Professor Dian teaches courses on African politics, ethnic politics, and field research methods. Her research interests include political behavior and public opinion, health, ethnicity, and research methods. The substantive focus of her work is on the opinions of ordinary Africans toward interventions aimed at improving their condition and the relative success of such interventions. Today, we are going to be speaking about her new book, Doomed Interventions, the Failure of Global Responses to AIDS in Africa. Professor Diane, welcome to the interview.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Could you start by sharing with us a little bit about your research?
1: Sure. So I'm trained as a political scientist, which means I'm interested in questions about power and, and politics. And most of my research has focused on the African continent and in particular on the experiences in Malawi, a relatively young democracy. I was a Fulbright fellow in Malawi in 2008 to 2009, which was when I collected a lot of the data featured in, in Doomed Interventions
0: also, in the book, you mentioned that you spent uh, some time as a graduate student volunteering with an NGO in Tanzania, an NGO that works on um, on AIDS. Uh, please, could you tell us a little bit about your experiences with the NGO and how that informs your research?
1: Sure. Well, that's actually how the book opens, right? I talk about an experience I have as a volunteer with this non-governmental organization that was run out of Arusha, Tanzania. And this organization was aimed at increasing awareness about HIV AIDS among Tanzanians in uh, the northern part of the country. And as someone who is very interested in learning more about Africa and someone who had this understanding of Africa as a place that was really suffering from AIDS, I thought one of the best ways to do that was to act as a volunteer and to learn as much as I could about what volunteer organizations were doing in response to AIDS. And, you know, I'm not uh, ashamed to admit in the book that, you know, I was really naive um, a dozen years ago when I was setting out to do that work. I learned a lot. From that experience. And that's why, you know, I still encourage students to participate in programs like that because I do think that they can really teach us a lot about what people are already doing to improve their own condition, and about a lot of the global inequalities in trying to improve the human condition. And so the story that I recount at the beginning of the book is about an old man, a respected elder in this area where we had been working for many weeks, who raised a question about his own idea about how there could be a better and stronger and more effective response to aids in africa and you know his idea was publicizing a list of mm-hmm. all of the people who were infected And, you know, that runs counter to notions of confidentiality that are strong in Western approaches to HIV AIDS. At the time, it was hard for me to see that his opinion and his ideas were actually, you know, they were well informed by his own experiences navigating the AIDS epidemic and certainly more informed than my own. Yeah. So it's a way to talk about interventions, you know, that helps us understand things from a different perspective and helps us respect, you know, the ideas that people are posing in response to the epidemic.
0: One of the things that came up early in your book is the idea that HIV interventions do not reflect the opinions or ideas of their intended beneficiaries. As a historian of African development, I see this all the time in projects that I study how locally produced knowledge or the priorities of the people are rejected in favor of the views of the so-called international experts. In what ways has this problem affected the success of AIDS interventions in Africa?
1: Well, it's certainly disappointing to hear from a historian to say that this is not a new problem, um, but I guess not surprising. In the case of AIDS interventions, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of talk about partnerships between uh, local organizations and international organizations. There's a lot of talk about needs assessments, where people reach out to the community to try to learn what their needs are, so that they can build programming that are that that is responsive to the needs of communities and as much as there's talk mm-hmm. about this there aren't a lot of programs that actually engage locals in what their needs and what their priorities are i think that that's mm-hmm. that's part of the reason why you know these interventions as i say are are doomed to fail right because they're not seeing what people actually want or what people actually need you know mm-hmm. even some of the most famous interventions for example The Global Fund was originally designed such that there would be this local body, the country coordinating mechanism, which was supposed to act as a way to ensure that local interests and local priorities were being reflected in uh, the programming that would be supported by the Global Fund. But as I'm sure you know, uh, there's been a great deal of challenges in the capacity building activities for country coordinating mechanisms in Global Fund-supported countries. And Of course, there have been these major scandals in places like Uganda and Zambia and even in Malawi, where I've worked, with global fund money actually being appropriated to programming that's not consistent with what the original intentions of the grants were for.
0: Yeah. In the book, you spoke about one of those problems, um, specifically the Kenyan HIV AIDS uh, disaster response uh, project. This got caught up in a corruption scandal you talked about the idea of a principal agent relationship and things that can go wrong in such a relationship can you speak more about these and uh, and specifically about the kenyan scandal
1: sure so you're referring to the kadrep scandal and this is a world bank funded program in kenya that was supposed to provide 15 50- million dollars to HIV AIDS response and that, you know, it was supposed to go through different components and it was supposed to support the National AIDS Council while also supporting AIDS control units in the various line ministries. And as I show in the book, you know, because there are all these Entities through which these millions of dollars from the World Bank are supposed to flow, a lot of you see a lot of corruption and graft throughout. Not least of which, the director herself, Dr. Margaret Gachara, you know, she um, misrepresented her background and demanded a salary well above what she was you know, what she should have earned. And and in fact, you know, she was brought up on corruption charges and had to pay back a, a great deal of her salary. And what's interesting about CADREP is, you know, there were multiple audits demonstrating the corruption and graft that happened, even in only the parts of the the programming that was audited, meaning, you know, the it wasn't that the whole program went under audit. It was just that certain selections of it were audited. And, and there was significant corruption and graft throughout this. And the only reason why we find out about this in the mainstream media is because one of the World Bank audit documents was leaked to the press And it was actually reported on in the Wall Street Journal, as well as, of course, reported on in many Kenyan newspapers. And so I use the KADREP scandal as an illustration of how there are these many actors involved, right? The World Bank, the Kenyan government, Mm -hmm. um, within the Kenyan government, the various ministries, and then within those ministries, uh, these AIDS control units. And I try to show how in this global to local hierarchy, money flows and how on each of these links in the chain, there's an opportunity for money to go towards things it wasn't intended to, whether that was corruption and graft or whether it was just reappropriation for something else that communities would find beneficial. And ultimately, I show that even if this money eventually goes to the targeted program, it's not clear that those programs are effective at stemming the tide of HIV and AIDS. And so even (laughs) Even in the best-case scenario where money flows as it's supposed to to the intended programming, it's not clear that that programming itself is effective at fighting AIDS.
0: Is the ineffectiveness due to the top-down approach rather than responding to the local priorities of the people?
1: So I think there are a couple of ways which that money may be ineffective. Now, now one is certainly the top-down approach that I talk about, you know, and this multi-layered intervention. I think also though as any AIDS researchers will say, you know, we don't have a silver bullet for how to respond to AIDS. And so a lot of the programming especially in the 90s and early 2000s you know there was a lot of money being spent on things that we were hoping would work but we weren't really sure were going to work right so you know things like raising people's awareness there was a lot of money spent on raising awareness mm-hmm. because people thought you know if we just told people you know how deadly aids was and how they could catch it and how they could avoid it fewer people would get infected but you know, If anyone was paying attention to the research that was done in the 90s, plenty of African scholars mm-hmm. were pointing out just how much people already knew about HIV and AIDS, how it was transmitted and how it could be avoided. So some of it is, is the fact that there's this top-down programming, but some of it is just that programming itself wasn't very effective, right? And often we didn't mm-hmm. know that yet, but sometimes, you know, even in the in the case of AIDS awareness raising, we did know that that wasn't necessary, but that didn't stop people from spending millions of dollars on raising awareness about AIDS.
0: In the book, you made a distinction between interventions and responses by levels of governance. These three levels are international, national, and grassroots. Could you say more about these three and how each differed from the other in terms of their successes?
1: Sure. So I think so th- these three levels, international, national, and local responses. Um, They're all very different. And what's interesting is that much of what we read, especially that written by political scientists on responses to AIDS in Africa, focuses on international and national responses. So, you know, whether or not international organizations like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation or multilateral bodies like the Global Fund are spending enough or doing enough on AIDS, or people would focus on national government right or national leaders whether or not uh Thabo Mbeki was good at responding to aids especially as compared to Yoweri Museveni right so the former south african president often compared to the ugandan president in kind of highlighting you know how people are responding to aids and i think that these actors are really important right international actors are the ones who are providing a lot of the financial resources for responding to AIDS, and certainly that's important, especially in the way uh, global capital is structured and how AIDS drugs are manufactured and how expensive they are. You know, financial resources are important. They're also providing some of the scientific technical knowledge about treatments and and care for AIDS patients. Right at the national level, you know. Of course, political will and the response by national governments and how that might motivate citizenry is also important, but I argue a lot of the response is happening at the level of the intended beneficiary, right? So in local communities, whether that's in uh, peri-urban markets or rural villages, you know, that's where people are accessing their care um, or their ability to get Mm -hmm. HIV tested. And it's at these levels where we we understand probably the least about how people are responding to, to AIDS in Africa. Now, there have been a lot of great studies, mostly by anthropologists and sociologists, where they give us a sense of how regular folks responded to aids you know how they changed their behavior to try to avoid infection and how they cared for their loved ones as they became sick with aids right and it's those kinds of responses right at the point of care that that are are really important and so i try a little bit uh, in one chapter to focus in particular on some agents of aids interventions right i look in particular at headmen of rural villages in Malawi who are themselves trying to uh, provide some response to the AIDS epidemic, whether it's at the behest of external actors, people in the district and national capital, trying to encourage them to do something to help their villages Or if it's really just something organic, you know, from the village themselves, you know, they can see how people are becoming infected and infected and how people are getting sick and and trying to do something in their villages to stop that from happening.
0: So you mentioned that President Thabo Mbeki of South Africa approached it differently from President Yoweri Museveni of Uganda. Could you speak more about these two leaders' responses and how political uh, pressure uh, shaped their responses.
1: I'm sorry, could you repeat the question?
0: So I'm wondering to what extent did uh, domestic political pressure shape the responses of uh, President Thabo Mbeki of South Africa and President Yoweri Museveni of Uganda, their responses to uh, AIDS in Africa?
1: That's a great question. And it's not one that I really address in the book. So I have another research paper that I wrote a few years before the book called Executive Time Horizons and Responses to AIDS in Africa. And in that paper, I argue that when political leaders see themselves as being in office for a very long time, they're much more likely to respond to AIDS. And the reason why is because AIDS is a bit peculiar in that It's a disease in the latent phase, you know, it could take eight to 12 years to manifest. So it's not like getting the flu, you get infected and you're immediately sick, right? With HIV and AIDS, you can get infected with HIV, but not get sick for eight to 12 years, even absent having any treatment. And so what I argue in that other paper is that. Leaders who see themselves as being in office for a very long time, they saw AIDS as a problem that they needed to deal with. So, for example, at the time, right, someone like uh, Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe in the 90s, you know, he saw himself as being in office for a very long time. And, you know, I mean, he wasn't wrong, right? He just left office this year. So, someone like Robert Mugabe responded Mm -hmm. actually um, rather strongly to HIV and AIDS. But someone like Thabo Becky, the president of South Africa, right? South Africa is a place that holds regular elections. And so every mm-hmm. five years, the leader of South Africa has to be concerned about whether or not they're doing what the citizens want them to do for fear of, of getting elected out of office, right? And so it might be different in a setting where there are these regular democratic elections and also in places where there might be term limits on a president's power, it bears out a bit in the data so that these places where executives mm-hmm. could expect to be in office for a very long time, they spent a great deal more on long-term issues like health. Um, those mm-hmm. um, presidents who had you know, the threat of being kicked out of office, whether that's because of an impending election, they may or may not have a chance of winning, they spent a lot less But was interesting. One puzzling finding that I had in that paper was that these guys who had short time horizons, you know, people who were worried about being um, kicked out of office soon, they actually created Mm -hmm. much more AIDS policy. And so, you know, upon reflection, I, I thought about it and I looked in particular at, you know, some of these presidents who were you know, creating a lot of AIDS policy. So on these international scales, they were showing, they were demonstrating a lot of political will to fight AIDS. These guys were probably doing it for the money. I cite some work by Helen Epstein and Nicholas Vandewal, where they talk about foreign aid as an ATM. Uh, And that's certainly true in the case of HIV AIDS. So someone like Malawian president, Bakili Malusi, who was seeing himself get Termed out of office because of constitutional term limits, he made a lot of AIDS policy. And doing that is one way to endear himself to donors, right? To, To bilateral partners who want to spend money on HIV AIDS and want to do it in a place where they can say that the leader of that country has demonstrated a lot of political will. So I think, you know, to get back to your question, you know, why do we see differences between Tabo and Becky and Yoweri Museveni. My other research would suggest that this issue about time horizons matters, right? And as we can see, right, Yoweri Museveni is still in power, right? So certainly in the 1990s, he saw it as something that was threatening to him if he didn't do something in response to AIDS. Whereas maybe Tabo and Becky didn't see that as as strong of an issue for him to deal with in the time that he he saw himself being in office.
0: Something else I want to speak with you about um, is um, interventions with uh, with condoms as part of the global response to the epidemic in Africa. In the last several decades, American evangelicals have been playing an important role in the continent. So I'm wondering, are the evangelical and Christian leaders, including Catholic leaders, supportive of the distribution of condoms? If they oppose this form of intervention, in what ways has this impeded progress?
1: I think this is a really tricky question, and there's a lot one can say about you know, American evangelical work in Africa about uh, the role of religion in response to AIDS. In fact, on that, um, there's a great book by Jenny Trinitopoli and Alexander Weinreb actually titled Religion and AIDS in Africa, published by Oxford Press. And also, uh, you know, their book uh, looks in depth at some of the sermons that were related in churches in Malawi, you know, right at kind of the height of the AIDS epidemic in the early 2000s. And it's tough. You know, I think that there might be this weird, I don't know, I don't want to say it's a marriage, but, you know, i all of the research that I've read and am familiar with, at least in the Malawian context, suggests that condoms are actually not a very effective method for not an effective method at the population level at stemming HIV spread. Now, I know at the individual level that condoms are very efficacious ways of preventing transmission of sexually transmitted infections. I know that to be true. I know that they act as a barrier to sexually transmitted infections. And so I always encourage my students, you know, to use condoms. They're effective. At the same time, what we see, especially from ethnographic research done by colleagues like Ann Swidler and Ido Tavori about what a condom means. Uh, there's this great paper that Agnes Chimbiri wrote uh, that starts off with this quote that says, the condom is an intruder in marriage. And it makes mm-hmm. us think about, you know, what who are the people that are most likely to be infected, right? It's not um, the casual sex that you're having with a bar girl. It's your likelihood of being infected is actually from your long-term partner, because that's the person you're having the most frequent sex with, right? And so in a sexual encounter, everyone knows to use a condom with a casual sexual partner, but it's, the, it's your long-term partner that most people are unwilling to use a condom with. And I think that that's true around the world. I don't Mm -hmm. think that that's specific to Africa or to Malawi. And I I think that's why it's really hard to see condoms as um, an important tool to stemming um, a largely, you know, kind of within marriage epidemic. And so there are other there, you know, there just needs to be other ways to do it. And and we see among Malawians, you know, you know, they've they've kind of reformed the ABC approach, right? A for abstain, B for be faithful, C for condom. Mm-hmm. A lot of Malawians added D for divorce. You can't <laughs> really use a condom with your husband. You know he's sleeping around. Just divorce him, you know, because that's this that's the way to protect yourself from getting infected. And, you know, you see that, especially in places where women have some power, right? So in matrilineal communities in in Southern Malawi, like among the Yao, people live in in the wives' villages, you know, the wife can just say, get your mat and go. You know, if you're going to sleep around, I don't need to be married to you. And so while I truly believe that condoms are effective, you know, in an individual setting, I think that for a long-term strategy to avoid the spread of HIV, I just don't think it's very effective.
0: One of the things you also mention in the book, uh, specifically in the Malawian case, um, is the people's apprehension toward condoms. Even though the government had this pro-condom policy, the attitude of the people is that condoms are not technically effective, or be a state form of population control. How do the NGOs or the government combat these kinds of beliefs or attitudes?
1: So that's really important. So you're drawing on um, some of our ethnographic research where everyday people, I think that they're playing a bow game you know, in the marketplace and, and they're having this conversation. And this is not something that's recorded by North American researchers who are hanging out, right? This is a, a conversation that's recorded by a Malawian journalist. It's through these conversations, this Malawian journals project that we have, that we're able to actually understand how people talk about AIDS in their everyday conversations. And it's where we learned, you know, these conspiracy theories that people have about how AIDS, a project of the West to try to control population in Africa because problems with foreign aid. And, you know, we can see these conspiracy theories as wrong. I would suggest Mm -hmm. the way to think about them is how they make Interventions difficult. Um, not that they're wrong per se. Um, you know, if we think about some of the ways globally, you know, Black people have suffered at the experimentation of whites, I don't think that you know, being conspiratorial is, is a is a poor defense mechanism. I actually think it's quite smart, but. As for people who are trying to launch these interventions, you know, what, what's, um, what does this mean? I mean, I think it it says a few things, like there's a significant level of mistrust and we see that not just in the HIV AIDS epidemic, but also in the recent Ebola outbreak in West Africa, right? In places where Mm -hmm. people did not trust the government, they were less likely to follow instructions about how to keep from getting infected and how to deal with people who become sick. It's only in these places where they actually trust the government and believe that the government is providing for them, that they'll actually heed some of the messages that are, um, being broadcast by the government as ways to combat disease. And I think what this means is that, you know, it's really important for governments to regularly engender trust among their populations, because when an epidemic hits, they're going to need to withdraw on that trust and and use that trust among their citizens in order to get citizens to do what is necessary to stem an epidemic. I think in the case of AIDS, or in the case of Ebola, you know, this trust is really important. And it's not something that you can fix in the course of an intervention, it's something, it's a longer term, issue that governments and international organizations have to deal with and i think one way to, to a bridge i guess you could say to try to deal with this problem in the short term try to find people that citizens already trust and win their trust and try mm-hmm. to encourage them to adopt behaviors that will help to stem the spread of a disease and maybe they can act as social influencers but even, even in those cases, I think, you know, it's, if you're already not very trustworthy, and it's it's hard to win the trust, especially of people who are influential.
0: So the people that the citizens trust, are you thinking of village headmen, religious ministers, or uh, community leaders and chiefs?
1: Yes. So in my book, I talk in particular about village headmen, though, I do want to say, you know. I think village headmen in Malawi are generally uh, very well respected and trusted by their citizens. And of course, there there are some that are not respected and are not trusted. I, I think they happen to be in the minority in Malawi. But I recognize that in other places, for example, in Tanzania, there's not an equivalent headman who's as um, respected and trusted. And so even though it's a book about Africa, you know, a lot of the, the data come from Malawi. And, and I think that in Malawi and and maybe also in Botswana and Zambia and perhaps even Lesotho, I think that the village headman could be, or the the chieftaincy uh, hierarchy could be a place where interventions could seek people that could assist them. You know, recognizing, of course, that these methods were also used by colonial powers right so this is why we see for example mm-hmm. in South Africa what they call native authorities right the equivalent of the chieftaincy hierarchy in mm-hmm. in Malawi the native authorities in South Africa, right, they were the ones who continued to perpetuate apartheid systems. As much as I think that the, the chieftaincy hierarchy can be an avenue to reaching citizens, I also think that that's that, you know, it could it could potentially lead to negative consequences for citizens, and that's going to depend on how good the chiefs are at navigating some of these external requests. But yes, also, as you mentioned, religious leaders could be another local leader or local aid. Agent who could act on behalf of interventions to try to help them to reach the people and to also be uh, informants about what people's interests and priorities are. At the same time, you know, of course, religious leaders, just like village headmen, could themselves be self interested. You know, could be corrupt. You know, just in the same way that people have complained that village headmen are. And I don't know. The way around that, um, particularly with religious leaders. So, in the case of village headmen, at least in Malawi, you know, there is a process of some oversight, even by citizens, so that if village headmen act out of line, their villagers can report them to someone higher up than the chieftaincy hierarchy. I've witnessed even village heads being deposed because they acted outside of the interests of their villagers. And I don't know that there's an equivalent enforcement or accountability mechanism among local religious leaders.
0: One of the things that come up in your book, and this is really unfortunate, is the fact that many African countries are donor-dependent nations. Uh, You mentioned that about 37% of Malawi's budget comes from foreign aid. As research has consistently shown, when a country relies too heavily on foreign aid, state capacity is weakened and the sovereignty of the nation is in question. I'm interested to know how its response is affected by foreign aid, how uh, this whole idea of most of the money coming from foreign donors, how that affects ways in which um, interventions happen.
1: Yeah, I mean... Malawi is one of these cases where as as you point out you know the reliance on donor money is really high and I think This is particularly true of HIV-AIDS responses. So the Clinton Health Access Initiative actually tried to put together some numbers about just how dependent Malawi's AIDS response was on donors, and they estimated that it was over 90% actually of Malawi's AIDS response is funded by donors, and so less than 10% of the response is funded by Malawi's government. And so what does that mean for the response? It means it is inherently driven by what donors want. And that's dangerous for a disease like AIDS, which has no cure, right? It's um, The people in Malawi who are infected with HIV AIDS are going to be dependent on donors' whims as to whether or not they're going to continue receiving treatment. And I just think that that's an untenable situation. Um, While I'm glad that donor countries are providing this support, I worry about when they decide this is not an issue they have to deal with anymore. And especially as an American living under the Trump administration, Mm -hmm. before Trump even came to Mm -hmm. power, he was you know, there were memos that his colleagues were drafting, questioning, why are we giving all this money to these poor countries? And why are we providing all of this, all of these funds? And, you know, they would ask questions about, you know, is this even good to be spending all of this money on HIV AIDS, you know? And and it's one of the concerns I've had all along with the PEPFAR initiative that's Providing a lot of the funding from the U.S. is that well, what happens when you elect an American president who no longer cares about AIDS? Does that mean that all of these people who have been given these life-saving drugs are now going to have to stop um, taking them? And and we all know what that means—that's a death sentence for anyone who has AIDS. You know, certainly until there's a cure for AIDS, you know, it's going to be really important what donors interests are. And unfortunately, as I show in the book, donors aren't always very good identifying the best ways to provide interventions. And so until the people who are themselves navigating the epidemic are the ones who are also designing the responses and supporting those responses to AIDS, I think we're going to have, I think we should all be concerned, especially for people who are dependent on treatment to continue their life.
0: I am really glad you brought up PEPFAR. In reading your book, it is clear that these interventions are not really effective. Yet PEPFAR is celebrated by the U.S. government as a great success. Can you assess the achievements of of PEPFAR in light of what is actually happening in the ground in Africa?
1: That's a good question. And I don't know that anyone would have a very specific answer. I can say this. It's not clear to me that there would have been this major ramp up in access to treatment absent PEPFAR. I think that PEPFAR and the Global Fund were really important in increasing access to treatment. And I think that that was really important for people. I, I just don't believe that the lottery of where you're born should decide whether or not you have access to health care. You know, I think it was really important that access to care was expanded so that it wasn't just you know people who lived in the U.S. were were able to get antiretroviral treatment to extend their lives. Now, whether it was a success, it certainly was a success in, in ramping up treatment, but you know, for the money that was spent, you know, was it cost effective? Um, Was there a lot of money that was misspent? Mm -hmm. You know, I highlight some of the grants that were made through PEPFAR to various agencies in Malawi. And we see, for example, that, you know, a a defense contractor in the United States won a grant to work on Malawi's information system management. (laughs) So that, you know, it's like, okay, well, you know, that $100,000, PEPFAR gets to say that it was spent on on AIDS in Malawi, when really it was spent on some guy who was coding some system, probably in like Southern California, right? So it wasn't really spent on Malawi. So mm-hmm. what's interesting to me is that how much money they get to say that they spent and they, they get to claim credit for spending it in Africa, when really they're spending it on a lot of American contractors or American companies that are able to make money off of this epidemic. And so I think that Sure, there have been some successes and access to treatment being the biggest one among them. But do they spend that money? Do they spend that money responsibly? And could they have done more with what they spent? And, you know, just because George W. Bush spent a great deal of money on PEPFAR and HIV AIDS response in Africa doesn't absolve him of all the many other things that he committed while he was in office.
0: So you've painted for us a picture of a system of interventions that are not really working in Africa. So what is a path all the way forward?
1: That's a great question. and I end the book. Saying that the best thing we can do is listen to people and what they want and what they think and and let them design their own responses to the problems that they're facing in their everyday lives. And I talk in particular about Afrobarometer, a nonpartisan African led research organization that collects public opinion survey in 35 African countries. You know, since the late 1990s, Afrobarometer has been collecting data. To get people's opinions and priorities on the continent. And which is to say, you know, the data are out there for us to know what people want, what people think is important. And the capacity is there in Africa for us to be asking these questions ourselves. So donors who are interested in, actually improving the human condition, you know, whether that's responding to AIDS in Africa, whether that's responding to Ebola in West Africa, or whether it's responding to, you know, terrorism or other issues that are concerning, I think it's going to be important to understand what citizens prioritize and to try to use that information to design interventions that are responsive to citizens' needs, because I think that that's going to make interventions
0: much more successful. So let me conclude by asking you, what is the next book or project you are working on?
1: Oh, that's a great question. And I know normally people are like, Oh, I just got done with this one. I'm not ready to talk about the next, but I actually, I actually am ready to talk about the next. So I am very fortunate to be working with my colleague Boniface Dulani at the University of Malawi Chancellor College on a second book. So um, this book is is very, very different from the first. So we are actually writing a book on African voters. So what is it that gets people Mm -hmm. to get out and vote. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting. There's such high voter turnout in African countries and especially in places where you know, the outcome is already decided, you know, we are curious to know what is it that gets people to the polls? And we are going to be using a great deal of Afrobarometer data to explore this question, but also, you know, uh, looking at places where Afrobarometer doesn't collect data, right? Difficult places, for example, like the Democratic Republic of Congo, where elections have been postponed significantly and over and over again, you know, what is it that's getting people out into the streets to demand? that they have the ability to elect their next leader. So um, yeah, so right now we're in the midst of getting the data together for that book, but but we're really looking forward to writing that up and, and sharing with you and your listeners, hopefully in the future about what we find.
0: Thank you very much, Professor Dion. Sounds fascinating to me. I'm looking forward to reading it. If you're interested in understanding why development interventions are failing in Africa, read Professor Dion's book. Again, the title of the book is Doomed Interventions, the Failure of Global Responses to AIDS in Africa.
1: Thank you so much, Professor, for having me on the podcast and for reading my book so closely and asking such wonderful questions. I had a great time talking to you about it. And I I hope your listeners enjoy it as well.
0: Thank you.